Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to The Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. David, how are you? I'm doing well. It's still a little chilly in New York City. We had like one day of warm weather just to pretend and now it's cold again <laughs> so, just a little bit of a tease i'm sure yeah, uh, yeah. have a have a yuri part of the world so. oh it's the same man it's it's a frozen tundra i woke up this morning and i asked alexa you know what's the temperature outside negative one okay just stop talking now just <laughs> i don't i don't want to listen to her anymore um i know that you've got a guest on the show again today and i hope it's warmer where where ian is uh, who'd you bring on the show so yes, with us today, Ian Formigli, who is the Chief Investment Officer with CrowdStreet. So hi, Ian. Welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be on today. So before, so the reason I brought you on was you guys put out this interesting report that looks at some of the best places to invest in 2022. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to give you a, a moment to talk about, you know, just give talk about yourself and and tell our audience a little bit about CrowdStreet for those who may not have heard of the firm. Absolutely. Be happy to. Uh, so my name is Ian Formigli. I'm the CIO of CrowdStreet. CrowdStreet operates uh, the nation's largest online marketplace for commercial real estate investing. It's a two-sided marketplace where commercial real estate operators and developers will come onto it. They'll present private equity offerings that are subscribed to by accredited investors all over the country. I serve as the key decision maker for all the deal flow that goes onto the marketplace. We launched in April of 2014. Our company dates back to around 2012. I joined as a CIO around September of 2014, essentially after the first two deals had gone live. Um, since inception, we've funded over $2.8 billion in equity across about $22 billion worth of properties. That spans uh, 44 states, I guess, if you include D.C., uh, and we just came off a record year of funding about $1.2 billion in 2021 alone. So that's a little bit about us. So that's interesting too, that we're, that you're coming off such a strong year and especially to hear, because you're working, like you said, largely with retail accredited investors, correct? So we're talking about people that are looking to, who, who have a little bit of money to invest and they're trying to get some exposure to real estate and they're looking to a platform like yours to get exposure. So that speaks to some pretty strong demand overall for the space from that kind of investor. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, every investor on the marketplace uh, does meet the SEC definition of an accredited investor. So they either meet the income test or the net worth test. And in essence, what the investors are, are looking for is the opportunity to diversify into you know, direct commercial real estate, private equity offerings. So they, they, they join, they start learning, they begin investing. Uh, about 70% of all of the investors on the marketplace are repeat investors. Mm -hmm. The average repeat investor has now gone into roughly six investments. The typical ticket size or you know, individual investment increment uh, is just under $50,000. So they're, they're here to basically build diversified real estate portfolios in direct CRE deals all over the country. Yeah. I think I, I just find that such a interesting evolution of the marketplace. Cause for, it seemed like for a long time, unless you had a direct, a direct in to uh, somebody at a real estate company who could make a placement with, you were maybe more limited to doing just stuff with equities, but now as an accredited investor through these, the, 
the platforms like yours, it gives folks this opportunity to, to make these direct investments in, in commercial real estate. So it's, I find it just, it's, it's, it's an interesting and dynamic part of the market. So I'm sure you must feel that way, having been operating there with it yourself now for, for, as, for, for like you said, for the last uh, seven years, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and what's interesting about that was that, you know, the platform of CrowdStreet was really born out of the Jobs Act of 2012. And mm-hmm. so the the co-founder of the company, Darren Powderly, he was first out of the gates with this. And he saw this opportunity back in, you know, late 2012 to say, hey, look, when when the Jobs Act and particularly Title II of the Jobs Act would go live, and that occurred in September of 2013. It was going to enable for the first time since the passage of the Securities Act in 1933, the opportunity to publicly advertise a, you know, a Reg D private offering. Mm-hmm. So the way that in parlance, the way I always like to describe it as, you know, you could think about these right, you know, these Reg D private offerings, and it was always relationship first, mm-hmm. get to know an investor, get to know their criteria, their suitability, and so forth. And then you could show them deal. And so that translated into what we call the country club type deals that were getting right. done at you know friends local and all that kind of stuff but it was really fragmented and it, and it was it was very much local so what the what the jobs act did was it turned that around it, it could add it, it could essentially give you the opportunity to put the deal first and then the relationship second now provided that every investor in that deal was an accredited investor and so what we saw as an opportunity and what Darren and then Torstein the two co-founders saw as opportunity was if you could operate in that now 506C environment, you could now go advertise deals, which meant you could put them online. And if you could put them online, you could take them anywhere. And now you could really open up the country and eventually probably the world to investors can be anywhere meeting sponsors online and finding their way to deal flow. And you know what we saw and as an, as an individual investor and what we've seen over the last seven plus years is the, you know, the access for the individual is the main thing, right? Mm-hmm. These are investors who are saying, hey, look, I live in Seattle, but I would love to invest in Florida. I hear great things about the momentum that's coming to the Florida markets and growth there or vice versa. You've got somebody who lives in Orlando that says, I'd love to have an opportunity to invest in a multifamily project in, you know, in Bellevue, Washington, but they just didn't have an opportunity to get to know any developers or even get a chance to look at a deal. So right. that's what we were basically, you know, making possible for the first time, like I said, since, you know, since 1933. And then on the, on the flip side, you know, in terms of sourcing the deals, how has that, how has that piece evolved in terms of, you know, the people that are looking to sell properties, becoming more comfortable, put marketing through a platform like CrowdStreet? Yeah, that's a great question. And it really, tracks back to the kind of the history of, of the growth of CrowdStreet because when we went live, you know, and in, in the early years, you know, call it anywhere from 2014 up until around 2018, we had to completely acknowledge that the environment that we were in and would operate in was what we would probably describe as adverse selection. It was mm-hmm. a new environment. It was a new form of capitalization. And we had to know that we were going to potentially be preyed upon by groups that would come in and use us as kind of a one and done, maybe a way to you know grab de- some money for a less than desirable deal. So what we had to do for all of those years was we said we ultimately had l- strong conviction that the opportunity was robust, that this could become a major part of capital markets in the future, but we had to cross the chasm, so to speak. 
So what that translated and made in my made my job, you know, challenging for those years was to say we we need to grow, but we have to do so prudently. And so we really had to what I would describe as beg, borrow, and steal our way into good deals, groups that essentially didn't need us, uh, but were interested and intrigued and were willing to help literally help us along our way to get to good deals and good deal flow and to say, hey, we'll give you this deal. You're not going to raise a lot of money in 2015. We get it. But we think you're going to be very real in 2020, for example. And we would like the opportunity to have real opportunity to raise real money for you in the future. So let, let's go do this deal today. So that's kind of how we, we had to pick and choose our way and, mm-hmm. and you know, run that gauntlet. And luckily, by around the time we hit 2018, we started to migrate more into the direction of positive selection. And now today, I'd say that you know, given the, the funding velocity, the number of investors, and the types of sponsors that we can work with on the marketplace, you know, now we're solidly in the positive selection camp knowing that the groups that we work with have now seen the, the, the promise and kind of delivered in terms of what a dynamic marketplace of tens of thousands of accredited investors across the country can do for them on a deal-by-deal basis. So now pivoting to this report, I guess it was good to kind of hear all, all of that stuff and, and, and how you've kind of built this market here, because I, I imagine that then... F- helps feed into the methodology of this report itself. Cause I know you're, you're, you're some of the stuff that, that you um, base it on is third party information like stuff from green street and co-star, but then another, other of it, other parts of this analysis are based on the stuff that you have been able to analyze through having this deal flow. Correct. So correct. is that, is that kind of like, so I guess just talk a second for about how, this reports put together, and then what 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 some maybe the headline, headline takeaways are for uh, investors right now. Sure. So the, the backdrop for the best places to invest actually began in 2020. Uh, we published our first revo- report in 2021, but I would say the catalyst event was the pandemic itself. So we we went into 2020 knowing that that cycle, that previous cycle was getting somewhat long in the tooth. We were getting a little bit more defensive in terms of the type of deal flow that we were seeking to bring to the marketplace. And then of course the pandemic drops and, you know, the world ends for, you know, a month or two in, you know, March and April. We got very strategic and prescriptive at that time in terms of the types of deals that we would want to do and where we would want to do them and with what types of operators and developers we would bring to the marketplace. So what that led to was a were conversations with investors and a, a, essentially a call for to us to say CrowdStreet, we see you doing a few deals, so you're not doing it. You're, you haven't completely shut down the marketplace. How are you viewing this world, and what do you have conviction in? And that was conviction was really the operative term. We used to use this mantra in 2020 that carried us through the year to say like, why this deal right now? Because you didn't actually have to do a deal in April of 20, but we knew that there would be some amazing opportunities if you could uncover the right situations. So that sparked a conversation internally to say, hey, look, these thousands of investors on the marketplace, they are looking to us to provide thought leadership on the where and the why and the how. It's time to actually make this an annual thing. So that then translated into our team, the internal team, capital markets and investments teams at CrowdStreet, getting together for a couple few months, you know, at the end of the year, really thinking through geography and thinking about drivers, macro, micro drivers, and and then and then producing the report. So to your to your point, David, we we utilize you know third-party data, Green Street, 
co-star. We're all members of ULI at the, you know, for, on the investment side at the executive level. So, you know, I'm a member of a product council. So we use mm-hmm. the emerging trends in real estate. We're also subscribers uh, to the Lineman letter. I'm, I'm a, pa- a fan of Peter Lineman. Mm-hmm. So we pay attention to what he says. And then also we overlay that with our own experience, both in the existing portfolio. You know, we've got over 580 deals in the portfolio. We've brought, I think at this point, over 600 deals to the marketplace. So there's a lot of data points across the country that can give us really you know, impactful insights into, into what's happening you know, dynamically right now in across all of those 44 states that we've been in and across, you know, across asset classes. And then also to keep in mind that while we've done 600 deals, we've looked at you know, thousands more and so we can go back and kind of draw on some of those lessons learned. So you, you roll that up and then you, you know, you get into now Zoom rooms for, you know, weeks on end and hash out what we're seeing and think about population growth and job growth and rental rates and migration patterns. You know, that's a big been a big thing in the last year. Uh, you know, certain markets tend to stand out. Uh, we when we published this year's report, we were able to bring 16 markets from the 21 report carry forward. And then we also saw four new markets come in to the to 22, you know, that we thought were, you know, better poised kind of coming out of the pandemic to, to accelerate with some growth um, this year. So that's kind of the, the backdrop and how we got to producing this report and where we stand now. Just taking a, you know, quick glance at these 20 markets, what jumps out to me is it seems like pretty strong, you know, a lot of sun belts, um, some strong West Coast, some markets that are kind of known for life sciences and and tech that like that's that that you know that that seems to characterize some of what I see just like from from this from the city names that are popping out popping out to me. Yeah, uh, so you've pretty much mostly hit the nail on the head on these markets. So you know, I'd say dating back to 2018, you know, Crowd Street started to develop an investment thesis during that year. And we landed on growing secondary markets as kind of like where we felt the most opportunity was. Now, not to say that there, we didn't think there was going to be good deals in a primary market, and we've done you know, a bunch of deals in primary markets, but, the, the, but, that, but that primary markets would be maybe a little bit more nuanced. It would be you know, pockets within a primary market. For example, in the Bay Area, we would do deals in Oakland rather than mm-hmm. you know, down on Market Street in San Francisco and the like. But generally speaking, you know, we are a macro-driven kind of thesis marketplace. You know, we look, when we think about the areas where we see if we want to layer in population growth and job growth, you know, with affordability and so forth, the markets that had always stood out to us even back in 2018 were the markets like Austin, Raleigh, Durham, and Nashville, Denver, some, you know, those types of markets, Atlanta, you know, a big secondary market, I'd say almost becoming a primary market. But we we were just seeing under, you know, underlying fundamental demand for these types of markets consistent appreciation in the in, across multiple asset classes, absorption, absolutely rent growth. And so they just stood out to us as kind of where we felt like the best opportunity was. And to your point, coming out into 2022, we, we still love those secondary markets. I mean, now it's obviously no, it's no surprise that everybody loves Austin, Raleigh, Durham, and Nashville. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. What we saw is maybe a, a a really burgeoning opportunity coming out of 2021, now accelerating 22, would be a market like Orlando. So it jumped up to our number four, tremendous rent growth. Um, we'd been fans of Orlando. Uh, another couple of markets that were new for this year, Charleston. 
you've been, I've been a big fan of Charleston for years. I actually wrote an article back in 2017, I believe that I talked about like the next 18 hour cities uh, mm-hmm. and Charleston was, was one of those markets that hit, you know, my criteria for that. But in addition, you know, with a big, you know, year and major momentum in the life sciences market, we had to include San Diego in, into this year's rankings uh, because not only is it a great life sciences market, it's a great industrial market and it's actually becoming, you know, it's one of the bounce back and growing, you know, multifamily markets. Uh, we're also very bullish on Fort Lauderdale now. Uh, we've seen that market really thrive in being, you know, the next two market from Miami. We've all seen that just tremendous growth in the pricing in Miami, rent growth being as high as 30% in some markets. Uh, and so you're seeing Fort Lauderdale really benefit from that and now attracting you know, office tenants, maybe coming out of New York. Uh, so yeah, when you roll it all up, this is, you know, these 20 markets for 2022, we just think are really well poised to kind of come out of the post-pandemic market, continue to see, you know, either either continued momentum and kind of the Austin, Raleigh, Nashville scenario, or really bounce back and do really well in terms of like maybe Orlando and Seattle and Charleston. And in terms of the property type, how does that factor into, so this is just kind of like identifying markets. Are there, is it all property types in all markets or is it some specific property types in certain markets that, how does that kind of cross layer into, into the analysis? Yep. That's, that's a great question. And so how at CrowdStreet, how we balance the where versus the, the what, uh, the, the best places to invest is really going to be about the where. Uh, the what is going to be what we call our investment thesis. We publish that on our website. I'm actually getting ready to publish our 22 thesis. Uh, we're putting the finishing touches on it now. So probably by the po- time this podcast is live, it should be on our website. We, historically speaking, we're about a 40% multifamily marketplace. Mm-hmm. Then when you look at the other 60%, your next largest asset classes, historically speaking, are going to be office and hospitality. Those are going to be probably in the mid-teens. Then we're going to drop down into kind of like the low teens, maybe 10-ish percent. Then you would see things like industrial come. Retail is going to be probably a high single digit you know, percentage of the total. And then from there, we, you know, we've definitely been a big fan of niche asset classes. You've seen us, if you've been on the marketplace, you would have seen us do a number of self-storage deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have done some life science deals. Uh, we're also a big fan of you know, other kind of burgeoning asset classes. We are, we are believers in cannabis real estate where it's coming around the country. Uh, so when you, when you roll it all up, there, you know, there's basically every food group is represented on the marketplace except for land deals. That's pretty mm-hmm. much the only thing we don't do. But you know, we're, we're anchored in multifamily, both acquisition and development. Do you count build to rent as part of multifamily or next to multifamily? Yeah, good question. So I would say that for build to rent, you know, huge fans of the space, uh, we would consider that an offshoot of multifamily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess you could say it's a niche asset class, but it's really at this point probably just starting to get baked into the greater multifamily discussion. Uh, we got to be fans of that space in 2019. Uh, there's a group that we work with out of Dallas who actually started pursuing developments of that in early 2019. They came to us, they started educating us on the space. Um, I kind of thought it became to my to me it was like my favorite thing that I'd seen. Love the demographic drivers in that space, right? You've got that millennial kind of now aging into their 30s, looking for more space. 
They probably have a dog now. They may have a partner. You know, they're looking for a backyard and a place to, you know, to go in and out of their own door and maybe a little garage rather than, you know, ride an elevator down a corridor and have a balcony. So that made a lot of sense to us. Also, concurrently, the other kind of barbell of that demographic being the empty nester, you know, now maybe selling their home wanting to maybe live in one place most of the year, but, but, you know, maybe migrate a little bit. And so having this kind of easy lock and leave, what's going to feel kind of like a bungalow rental to them. It's affordable, yet it still gives them flexibility on maybe spending some time with their kids in another part of the country. You know, I just, I felt in 2019, we got kind of all in on the space. We did a number of deals. Uh, some of those have actually already gone full circle, far better than we would have expected at the time. Uh, but we think that this, the, the BTR space has got legs for you know multiple years to come. Yeah, I think I saw, I forget, there was a recent, maybe it was the journal or, or, or maybe even it was just a broader industry report that they were quoting, but something like one out of every five home sales last year was, um, was from institutions, you know, to, that were renting it out. And I'm surprised. I mean, I know, you know, it's been a building business for a long time, but I still was a little surprised that the number was that high. Yeah, it, it was. And I, I'm equally surprised. I mean, we've all seen the institutionalization of the sector that really right. started back in the Starwood and early days of invitation homes, right out right, there buying right. them up post, uh, you know, GFC. Right. Uh, but it, it doesn't stop and it continues to become more of an institutionally owned space. And I, I, I mean, I won't be surprised now if you tell me that one in four homes, you know, becomes owned at, at, a, at a larger corporate level. It just seems that that's where we're going a little bit more of a, as a nation. You know, we're seeing obviously a little bit of, of downtake in terms of percentage of home ownership. Still think that there needs to be home single family dwellings built around the country. I think we're relatively still undersupplied. Mm-hmm. Uh, supply will catch up probably later this decade, but still a fascinating space. And I think overall a good, you know, long-term store value for, for investment. Um, one other question. So like industrial was a little lower on your list. Um, you know, I, th- I think given that overall, it's been one of the strongest sectors, but I think you had it that you've done a little less of that than multifamily. And I was curious about that, like how it ended up a little lower in the tiers. It just given the kind of investment sizes and 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 the competition in that space that makes it a little bit less on uh volume for your platform sure that you know kind of the competitiveness is is one aspect of it i would also say that the other aspect which is limited supply on the marketplace Mm -hmm. a bit so to speak would be that i'd say today we view the best opportunities in industrial really probably mostly on the development side. Mm-hmm. We're, we're a stabilized yield on cost driven type of platform, right? At the end of the day, I think because we are multidisciplinary, we're looking at what does it take to either acquire and stabilize this asset or build this asset and stabilize it? And what's the yield on cost? What's the relative risk to get there? And what's our corresponding cap rated exit, right? And we're looking for spread. At the end of the day, no matter what it is, and that helps us think about you know hotels versus industrial versus multifamily. And so in this in you know today's market, acquiring industrial, I think it's tough mm-hmm. when you have to pay a three cap on right. in place to get an, to buy an industrial project. It makes that you know acquisition very difficult to underwrite and get above you know a levered return on an IRR basis in the double digits. Right. And typically speaking. 
returns, you know, targeted returns on the marketplace really begin at about 10 IRR levered on a roughly five-year hold or a little bit longer, and they go from go up from there. So it makes that challenging for us to find, you know, acquisitions that that pencil, which really then positions us to go out and find developments because that spread between stabilized yield on cost and exit cap today is greater than where we've seen it in the past. I would say that in the last part of the cycle, call it 2019, we were seeing deals that we thought could pencil to 125 basis points to maybe up to 150 basis points of compression. Now we're seeing that over 200 basis points. And so we're going to go run after those types of deals where we really think that we can stabilize at a high five and really sell it at a high three, even though we're going to probably underwrite in all reality a, a low to mid, you know, mid four cap, just so that we can have a little bit more sanity in the underwriting and allow for some cap rate expansion in case it occurs. Uh, but we'll take that opportunity where we can find it. So because it's a little bit polarized in our perspective is what is going to make industrial just a lower percentage of overall volume because it's, you know, it's le- you know, it has less transaction volume. I mean, you can look at the RCA transaction data from last year. I think off the top of my head, I thought that if I recall, I think multifamily was about $335 billion last year, mm-hmm. while industrial was about $166 billion. So it's already half. And then you're kind of cut it, slicing into the part of the half, which is just going to make it a lower overall quantity on the marketplace. Just one, one more question. So you're getting, we're, we're talking about retail accredited investors who are, who are looking for exposure. What are some of like just the general tips or misconceptions or questions that that kind of, that, that kind of investor brings to the table. Like when someone's come into you that they've never invested in commercial real estate, they're interested in the space. Are there things that you common things that you, that you feel that you feel like you have to answer a lot to get people comfortable to, to be, to be, you know, getting into this kind of investment? Sure. That's a great question. I think that there's a lot of myths, I think, on both sides of the marketplace. Um, on the investor side, I think one of the reasons, you know, there, there's a lot of nomenclature and there's a lot of, you know, specific numbers and metrics that you have to understand to, to start to feel comfortable investing in commercial real estate, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. can talk about cap rates and yield on right. cost at, on this podcast, but for people that have never invested in real estate before, um, they can get hit with a lot of unknown information and literature. So I think the first thing is overall is, is, is education, which is why we spend a lot of time educating the investors on the marketplace. I think another thing also for investors to come in and understand is really that they are stepping into a private equity investment. There is such a thing, I think, as the liquidity premium, right? These are illiquid assets. So hence why the returns are higher than you would otherwise think in a, in a publicly traded REIT or something that has daily liquidity. So there's a, I think there's a little bit of that education that needs to filter through that, hey, yes, we can go target a 20 plus IRR, which would be like a one seven multiple on a, a three-year you know, build and sell type project. But there's a lot of assumptions that, that go into that equation and that, those variables can change. We can delay construction. We can lease up at lower rents than we thought. Um, we can have a different type of market when we go to sell. So I think those are the, the the key things that for investors who are totally new to the space to begin understanding is that just because we put a 20% targeted IRR on a page, that doesn't mean that that's what it's going to be. It can be lower, it can be higher, anywhere in between, and that you really are buying into the sponsor first and foremost. I think that's what we kind of talk about on the marketplace that you want, you're, you're really picking jockeys, right? Then picking horses. 
And then from there, you can go on to, to pick you know, strategy and so forth, but that you are signing up for what is an illiquid asset. And if you can handle that illiquidity, then on average, you get rewarded over time. So I think that's kind of the big thing on the investor side. On the sponsor side, I think that's it's the understanding a sponsor might come onto the marketplace and underestimate the overall sophistication of the investors on the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And it's totally fair to say that investors on the marketplace might not be the most sophisticated real estate investors, but they're sophisticated individuals. Absolutely. You don't get to be an accredited investor um, by being unsophisticated, right? So they're decision makers at their business level. They are chief of cardiology at a, at a hospital. They're, you know, they, they're lead partners in major law firms and things like that. So we spend a little bit of time educating sponsors on really who who is investing with you. And at the end of the day, if you're transparent and you report back to them and you treat them with respect, then that's that's the path to success. And the news can be anywhere from great to to not so great, but provided that you're honest and straightforward, that's how you build uh, trust. And I think that's an interesting place to, to end this topic on because at the end of the day, I think what the CrowdStream Marketplace really is, it's a trust platform. I mean, we can say we're doing deals, um, but it all, it all anchors on trust. And if there's not trust from a sponsor to an investor, then nothing really happens. So I think that's, that's the key thing for, on both sides to, to end, the, end with is that you are looking and seeking to build online trust and the marketplace is just there to facilitate it. Well, I think that's a good good note to end on. I thank you for rolling with my sometimes jumping around a bit from question to question, but I appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, and, and answering everything I had to ask you. Oh, absolutely, David. It was my pleasure. Anytime. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. I love the fact that you ended on that note uh, because trust is key in any type of relationship and investments are a relationship. So gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. David, of course, thank you for facilitating this and bringing uh, him on as a guest. Uh, I learned a ton and, and I think the audience did too. And audience, we trust that you learned a lot in this as well. We thank you for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.